Ed Welsh, uh, a biblical counsellor, said this. I think this is so perceptive. He says, fear is a false prophet. Now think about that. Fear is a false prophet. You see, anxious people are pessimistic visionaries. That's what they are. You think about there's probably no more visionary person than a, uh, an anxious person. It's just all the optimism's drained out of it and all you've got left is pessimism. People uh, who, are, uh, who are anxious live in the future, don't they? They don't live in the present. They probably don't even live in the past that much, although they'll have a, uh, a blinkered view of negative things that have happened in the past which inform their view of the future. But at the end of the day, fears and worries actually reveal us. They reveal the things that we love and we value. Now, I'm going to show you a little bit of a video. This is free and it's online. I don't really want you to do what they're saying. Just watch it, all right? Because it's really interesting. You just seem to know at the moment in terms of uh, anxiety and treating anxiety, one of the big, big things at the moment is mindfulness. Has anyone heard of mindfulness? Yeah, has anyone actually... Well, maybe I won't ask you to put your hand up. I was going to ask you if you've done it. I'll tell you what I think are a couple of problems with mindfulness at the end, okay? But I'm pretty sure by the time you get to the end of this or partway through this video, you'll see what's wrong with mindfulness, at least this version of it anyway, all right? This was at an in-service I went to in the first half of the year. I won't even say what the in-service was, just to protect the guilty. No, I mean the innocent. And... Um, Anyway, look, just observe, all right? They, they said at the start of this, they said, um, there's no point being a passenger here, so if you're not into it, leave. So I thought, I'm just going to sit and watch. <laughs> <laughs> all right? Now, this is from the uni of uh, Sydney. It's free, it's online, you can download it, because apparently, in terms of meditation, there's not that many people that can do meditation properly. A lot of people get it wrong, so... In their view, you should download their thing. They were recommending that we play this in classes at school like three or four times a day, all right? Now, some of you might, you might cringe a little bit at playing this in church and I don't know. Hope we'll be okay, I think. I'll make a couple of comments at the end. It goes for about a minute and a half. Here we go. We're going to take some time to feel the silence inside ourselves. It's simple and easy and very relaxing. Please sit comfortably, either on your chair with your feet a little bit apart or cross your legs if you're sitting on the floor. Place your hands on your lap with your palms facing upwards. Follow the pictures on this video if you haven't done it before or if you need help remembering. It shows you where to put your right hand and your attention. And listen for my instructions. Take a few deep breaths in and out very slowly and just pay attention to how you feel inside. To begin, place your right hand on the left hand side of your stomach, just below the ribs. Now say inside yourself a few times, I am my own master. Right? You got it. Now, I want to suggest to you that if you tell yourself often enough you're all your own master, that's probably going to inspire anxiety. All right? I think it will. But, but here's the thing. 
here's the interesting thing, is there's a part to mindfulness that actually works, right? So to be fair, it actually works. And they've done some research. And I, uh, one of my lecturers, I was down in an intensive on, uh, for my master's event on Friday and Saturday, and one of my lecturers said to me that therapies change about every 15 years. And uh, it used to be cognitive behavioural, and now it's kind of the mindfulness is all the rage, right? And there's always something in every one. There's always some kernel of truth, in a sense, that actually works. Now, the, the strength of mindfulness is this. Mindfulness actually draws people in. The, the goal of it is to draw people into living in the present, right? That's, that's the goal. Because the problem with anxious people is they, they tend to live uh, in, in the future and they're not living directly in the present, right? Now, the huge problems, obviously, there's one massive big problem with mindfulness there, okay? Is that you're not your own master, and that's going to be a major complication for you if you convince yourself. I mean, you imagine doing that three times a day, every day for a whole year. That's like a thousand times that you've told yourself you're your own master, and I'm pretty sure I do that already, more than a thousand times. I don't know about you, but we're kind of pretty good at saying that anyway. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the emphasis probably in mindfulness is, uh, and you probably gathered that by watching that, is um, the emphasis is to empty your mind and have an empty mind. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about having an empty mind is good for you. In fact, there's a scripture in Matthew 12 that talks about, in the context of demon possession, it says, if a demon gets kicked out of a house and then you clean the house up, you don't fill it up with anything, it finds another seven and brings it back and the state of the house in the end is worse than at the start. So I'm a huge believer in the fact that God's not interested in people having empty minds. I think he's interested in people having God-oriented minds. So what you've got, and I, and I, uh, I watched this great uh, short clip from a biblical counsellor talking about mindfulness, and I thought, I think they nailed it. He actually suggested that, that Jesus used some of the little, and this is very controversial, right, but he used some of the mindfulness kind of techniques on the Sermon on the Mount. Because some of the techniques, what they do is they get people to notice what's happening in the present. So what's Jesus doing? He's standing there, he's preaching in a sermon, and he says, see that bird over there? And he's asking people to notice the bird, right? But he's not telling them to have an empty head. He's saying, notice that bird over there. I look after that one. And do you see those flowers? I mean, we could do it here. Do you, can, can you see a tree outside? God looks after that tree. He clothes it. And, and, and you can see how he's just going, just notice that and notice this and notice that and notice that I'm in the middle of that and I'm caring and I'm, I'm looking after that thing. Does that make sense? And so it, it takes on a God, Godward orientation. So don't do that. Right? Don't go home and download it and go, oh, that's going to be really cool. Pete told us a chance to do it. The truth is God wants you to live in the present because his help is in the present. But he doesn't get you into the present by emptying your head, all right? And he doesn't get you into the present by telling you you're, you're your own master. The truth is, if we just go back to uh, anxieties and to fear, anxieties and fear, and I'm going to come back to this living in the present a little bit later on, anxieties and fear are all about danger and the interpretation of the danger, aren't they? Why are people scared of moths? That's weird, isn't it? It's like you've never sat in a room... Like we had a barbecue last week and this big bogon moth came and bit someone's head off. That's why I'm scared of moths, right? Like it doesn't happen, does it? So there's not... The thing is, there's a lot of fears that we have that actually don't correlate to anything real. 
it, it, because it comes down to the interpretation of the danger. See, there's lots of dangers in the world. There's death, there's disease, there's war, but there's also many, many, many different interpretations of the dangers. A lot of the time, scary objects actually reveal what we treasure. Often they point out two things. They, one of the things they point out is they point out our quest for control. They also point out our aloneness and how alone we feel. Ed Welsh, uh, in his book on Fear, Worry and the God of Rest, says this. He says, while fear refers to the experience when a car races toward us and we just, leave, we just barely escape, anxiety or worry is the lingering sense after the car has passed that life is fragile and we are always vulnerable. I think he's right. There's lots of dangerous things out there. Vulnerability speaks, sorry, anxiety speaks more to vulnerability than it does to actually danger. And some of you might say, well, I don't have any fears. Well, I suggest to you, maybe you've orchestrated your life so that you don't have fear. Maybe you're afraid of fear. Maybe you're afraid of anxiety. True? It's possible. Now, I dare you. I mean, get in the car. If you say you don't have any fear, I invite you to find some over-the-alcohol-limit 17-year-old who's just got their licence and sit in the passenger seat while they drive for a bit. You'll have fear, right? True? You'll have fear. Because we fear lots of things. It's a heart of, of being human. We've got fears about how we'll die. I remember being in this um, community group at, a, at another church and what we used to do is we used to rotate uh, the icebreaker at the start of the, start of the night which was like to help everyone to loosen up. And so it was, I can't even remember who it was, but it was someone's turn to do this icebreaker. So they came in and their icebreaker was just share with everyone the worst possible way that you could think of in terms of how you'd die. That's a real icebreaker, that one. <laughs> so we've got people drowning and getting burned alive and dying in car accidents and you just go, well, this is a good night already. But don't we? We think about how we're going to die. We think about cancer, Alzheimer's disease. We can think about being alone, being penniless. We can think about, uh, we can fear about what happens after death. We can fear about a meaningless life. And we can have extensive resumes and education but it becomes more and more meaningless the closer we get to the end of our lives we can fear being unloved or alone we can fear being in love and being hurt you can fear losing your figure i'll move on you can fear losing your boyfriend your girlfriend your hair your youth your mind, your money, your job, your spouse, your health, your hobbies, your purpose, your faith. See, any time that you actually want something deeply, you'll notice fears and anxieties because you might not get them. Any time that you can't control the fate of the things that you want and you love, you'll notice fears and anxieties because you might lose them. And here's the thing. The weird thing about this is everyone knows what I'm about to say, but we live in this, you know, in another time dimension almost. Control and certainty are myths. They're myths. Most of us live like we can control things and we can get some level of certainty, but it's not true. 
Some of you are going, I, I came to church to be happy today. <laughs> All right? It's just wrecked my day. But the important thing is, and we're going to get to this as we go along, is you need to listen to your anxieties. Listen to your, to your anxieties because your anxieties say very, very important things to you. Let's try this for example. Take your top three fears. Can you think what they are? What would be your top three fears? And say them out loud. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> think of them. Have you got them? Top three. Let me ask you a few questions about them. What do they say about you? What do you really want? What's important to you? What do you value? What do you love? What do they say about that? See, Blaise Pascal actually suggested that personal character can be assessed by how people handle rest and solitude. And the interesting thing about fears and anxieties is people get distracted and distracted and it spins up and up and up and we actually don't want to stop long enough to listen to them. True? You see, you could have anxiety and depression. You could also be driven. You see, driven people are struggling probably with anxiety as much as people who are depressed and anxious and immobilised. Because both people are responding to fear. So if you listen carefully enough to uh, depression, you know what you hear? You hear fear and you hear anxiety. I'm not strong enough to handle the despair any longer. I'm afraid all the time. I'm losing my ability to hide my true self. I'm afraid I'll be exposed. You see, underneath all of that emotional pain often is terror and fear. You see, fear and anxiety actually say this. They say that you want something and you might not get it, whatever that thing is. You want power, love, the TV remote, perfect children, but you might not get them. You want financial security, health for yourself, and those you love, safe passage to work, but you don't have control and you don't have certainty. Ed Welsh goes on to say this. He says, You wouldn't think that protective and involved parents would be driven by fear. But look more closely. Today's parents were an underprotected lot. They grew up during a time when the divorce rate had spiked. They came home to empty houses. Not only were many of them self-parented, they also parented their parents, which means that they had no parents. So naturally they are protective now as parents, involved and exhausted. They are looking into preschools before their child is born because they sense that the wrong one could forever handicap his or her future. Fear has given birth to extreme parenting. It looks like love, but it's love mixed with fear, mingled with fear. Isn't that true? It's an interesting thing for those of you here who are parents. How much fear is mingled with your parenting? You know, you have those moments, don't you? Where is this going to be the moment that's going to turn my child? And it's like every moment becomes this massive, massive big moment because the fear is, is in there and it's, 
inspiring us some anxiety. And there's no dawdling in the face of fear, is there? Whenever we perceive it creeping up on us, we've got to run from it. We've just got to find some kind of distraction. Because actually slowing down, as I was saying before, and listening to it is actually counterintuitive. It's scary and we just need to get away from it. You see, danger in the world around us is, is, the, is the seedbed of fear. As we've read before in the quote, vulnerability is the seedbed of anxiety. I want to uh, use a personal illustration to illustrate this. And I'll tell you half the story now and then I'll tell you the resolution at the end. I have four sons, which most of you would know. And um, I work often in the, in the school here with, uh, with boys that don't have dads. And I see a, a huge impact of the lack of fatherhood on, on young men. And I went through a very intense little period in my life when my wife would have called me a hypochondriac because what was going on underneath, there was a whole bunch of things that were informing my hypochondriasis or drosis or whatever it is. But underneath it, one of the things was that I was scared of dying because I was fearful of my sons and what would become of them if I died. Now, this was keeping me awake at nights. It was making it hard for me to go to sleep. It cost me money in doctor's appointments to check out skin spots that there was nothing wrong with. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It, it, I would wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep for a couple of hours and I'd just lie there awake, just churning. Now, the interesting thing was, this would have gone on, I think, for months. The really interesting thing about it is I didn't actually stop long enough to listen to my anxiety until right at the end. Because my anxiety was actually telling me something. Now, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. Stick with me. I've got a, uh, a crown here, or just, it's just a coin, okay? And I just want to use this as an example, right? And, and hopefully where we'll end up is you'll just go, oh, I understand where Peter's illustration fits in. You see, what you want and what you fear are like two sides of a coin. What you want and what you get anxious about are like two sides of a coin. And I was going to flip it, but I can't do it because I've got a handheld now, all right? But you know what? If one side of your coin is that you need comfort or you value comfort, the other side is that you're going to fear pain. True? If one side of the coin is that you need approval from other people, the other side is going to be that you're going to fear criticism. If one side of your coin is that you need love or you value, you highly value love, the other side will be that you'll fear rejection. If one side of your coin is that you uh, need admiration for your attractiveness and that's what you value, the other side will be a fear of getting fat. True? If one side of your coin is that you need what people can give to you and the other side of your coin is that those people will be in control of you and you'll fear them. True? If one side of your coin is that you need money and you need what money can bring, the other side of your coin will be that you'll notice rising insecurities whenever you get the bills and you need to do the bills. Do you see my point? They're two sides of the same coin.
Now let me tell you the end of my story. I actually realized one night, and I think, I think God revealed it to me, I actually realized one night, you know what was really going on? When I actually listened to my anxiety, this is what was going on. I thought I was in control of my son's lives. That's the first thing. And I'm not. I'm not in control of my son's lives. But you know what the main thing was? This was the big one. This, this was a huge one. When I listened to my anxieties, this was a huge one. And probably if you went to a therapist about anxiety, they're not going to say this one to you, right? But this is, this is the truth, all right? You come to church to hear the truth. Hopefully you get the truth in lots of places, but you come to church to hear the truth and we'll tell you. You know what it was? I thought I was a better dad than God was for my four sons. I thought that I was my son's last hope. Do you see that? And the problem was, if I was my son's last and their greatest hope, there was something that was greater than me, and that was death. And so anxiety was the result, does it? Does that make sense? And it's a weird thing, like if you go to a therapist and you say, I'm really scared about dying, and maybe even some of you when you're sitting here today, like if I said, I was really scared about dying because I didn't want my sons to be fatherless, you'd probably give me a cuddle, at least verbally. All right, some of you going, I'm not giving that guy a cuddle. At least verbally, you'd kind of work out, how can I say something? That's lovely, man. What a heart you've got for your kids. But, you know, sitting in there underneath it was, I think I'm my children's greatest hope. And you know what? I'm not. I'm not my children's greatest hope. And this is why I think when you look at, there's a uh, scripture in 1 Peter 5 that talks about humble yourselves before God, casting all your anxieties upon him. A really critical component in anxiety is actually arrogance and pride. I think I'm a better dad than God is for my boys. Well, you know what? Matthew chapter 7 says this. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? The answer is no one. No one would do that, right? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. It's like, here's a brown snake. You wanted something to eat? Some fish to eat? Here's a snake. It's just like, idiot, right? It's just like, wait. Who's got the docs number, you know? Department of Child Safety. We're calling them straight away. This dad's giving brown snakes to his kids instead of giving them food. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's better than me. He's always better than me. He's always been better than me at being a dad to my four sons. True? And I need to. This, this is the Christian idea of repentance. Repentance is I'm going to turn around and I'm going to face God and I'm going to be oriented toward him rather than oriented toward myself. So it turns out I wasted a whole bunch of time in the middle of the night and was tired and probably cranky at school and cranky with my sons all because I thought I was the greatest hope for my kids. And don't, I mean, some of you might go, oh, don't be too hard on yourself. Well, we've got to redeem, we've got to... We've got to recover a good understanding of what repentance is repentance is a good thing it's a really it's a turning around i sleep better now all right do you get what i'm saying like if you come to me and you go oh don't be too hard on yourself you know you're really hard on yourself you're real good you've got a hard love for your kids you know there's a way in which you could actually confirm me in my orientation away from god do you, do you get my point and it doesn't help me I'm not saying anyone did that because I didn't tell anyone about it, but it wouldn't help me if you did that. 
What would help me is if you're able to orient me toward God. Then I'm going to sleep better. Then I'm going to be less agitated with my kids and I'm not going to overinflate moments that I have with my kids because I think they're all about my impact on them and I'm not just a piece of the puzzle. You see, anxieties make you your only hope. (laughs) All right? If I imagine the worst, I will be more prepared for it. Worry is looking for control. It is still irrational because worry will not prepare us for anything. In fact, it limits what we can do. But at least it has its reasons. Going one step further to track this message back to its origins, there is an entire worldview implicit in some worry. It cries out about an ultimate aloneness. There is no one who can really help. No one can rescue. No one is really looking out for you. You're an orphan in a chaotic universe that operates according to chance. Who wouldn't be worried given such a view of reality? See, the instinct when, you've got a, when, when there's a fear or there's a threat is that you want to get some help. And the way that God's built humans is that they don't just want to get a machine to help. They tend to want to get someone living or something living to help. I mean, even if you're walking through a scary forest at night and you heard some weird noises, you'd settle for a dog, wouldn't you? Yeah? I remember we were living across the road from uh, some friends of ours and uh, we'd had a number of break-ins in the area and um, we just looked over and we thought, stuff, we think there's something going on over there, right? Now, there'd been times of people chasing each other through the Lincoln estate, you know, with, with bags full of goods that they're running away with. It was, it was a bit of a crazy time. Anyway, we're looking over and we think, I think the curtain's flapping outside the window over there. Someone's got to go over and just go, well, it's just me. All right? Now, you know what I'm doing? I'm getting my dog. <laughs> All right? I'm getting my dog. So what I do is I get my dog out of Border Collie purebred border collie and I just thought go champ <laughs> I've covered <laughs> and he ran the whole way around the house and then came back out wagging his tail and I thought oh it's all good all right but that's that's the well I, I still went over by the way some of you go, oh he went back to his coffee no he didn't but you want someone don't you but you know what the difficulty is with anxiety is you start thinking about people that you could trust in and lean upon then then you come to this realization that people have let you down a whole bunch of times true so you know the only person that you can trust in is who well it's god but you know what ends up happening is it's you and you can see how in anxiety you make yourself your only hope and the problem with it is when you hit something that's bigger than you you're isolated from god you're isolated from other people and you're not going to turn to God. So what's your only option? Anxiety. So so freak out about it. That'll help. So (laughs) worry and worry hard. That's what I need to do right now. So you know what I'm talking about. Now, I've done some reading on all this sort of stuff, right? One thing that I read... There's some really hardline Christian people. And they're right. They're right. But I don't, you can be right and not have the tactic that God wants to use, true? You can have the truth but not have the right tactic. And these people, in my view, I'm not even going to say who they are, they haven't got the right tactic. They haven't got God's tactic, all right? Because God has got truth, but he's got a way of delivering truth. So it works. 
Now, I don't think, like if I stood up last week and said, worry's a sin, you're a whole bunch of sinners and you need to repent and stop worrying. Probably half the crowd this week, right? That's what had happened, because that's not helping. It's like, now I've got something else to worry about. I'm sinning, all right? Let me ask you this. Christians are known, well, they have a reputation. I think Diff spoke about this a few weeks ago, but they've got a reputation for actually being neat freak kind of legalistic kind of rules kind of people, right? True? They get that reputation. And they deserve it, mostly, probably. Is that, would that be right? They're pretty good at, it's like, we know the rules, you're not following the rules, you're an outcast. All right, here's your bell, walk around calling yourself a leper. All right, you're unclean. That's, we kind of like to do that, right? Now, here's my question. What do you think is God's most frequent command through the Scriptures? A few ideas there. Well, you might be surprised. You know what it is? Over 300 times. Don't be afraid. Think about that. Over 300 times. Like you think about all the commands that Christians go out, you know, and there's a whole big thing going on with the whole gay marriage thing and all that sort of stuff, right? And Christians are out there and I'd read an article on news.com.au where some gay journo had a... Had a um, had a meeting with Lyle Shelton from the head of the AC, Australian Christian Lobby. And, I mean, it was an interesting article and they're talking about all this stuff. It's, isn't it fascinating? I mean, you can talk about all these ethical issues, but the one that is most frequent biblically is don't be afraid or do not fear. Isn't that interesting? You see, it's not actually about rules ultimately and commandments or being good people. Those things are kind of in there, but God's up to something totally different. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 41 verse 14, it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I love it. I mean, God's a realist, isn't he? So, well, you're a worm, all right? But don't, don't be afraid. No one's going to step on you. I'm going to back you, all right? Because it actually says in that passage, Fear not, you worm. I'm going to make you into a mighty threshing sledge, which was like a harvesting kind of deal. Um, and he goes, you're going to cut down mountains. It's like, that's pretty good, right? If, you, if God was going to do that, you'd go, yeah, I'm a worm. I'm all good with that, right? If I can cut Everest down, that would be a good start. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. What about this one? Isaiah 44, verse 8. Fear not, nor be afraid. It's like, didn't he just say that? But isn't that, isn't that how humans work? So like, fear not, don't be afraid. You say, well, didn't you? Yeah, but you're still afraid, right? So don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There are, is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. Isaiah 54 verse 4. Do not be afraid. You'll not suffer shame. You'll not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Jeremiah 1 verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Daniel 10 verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. Matthew 10 verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is Jesus now. 
Jesus again in Matthew 28 verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You see, the vibe of the Bible is not sins or worry you need to stop. The vibe of the Bible is like Psalm 56 verse 3. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. The really interesting thing uh, that's been happening in my family lately is uh, I remember watching this guy talking about how he did, um, a pastor in America actually, talking about how he did devotions with his kids. He said one thing that he used to do is when he'd read people speaking in their devotional books or in their kids' story bibles, they'd come up with the dumbest voices as I was reading it, just to make it entertaining, right? So I've been doing this with with my boys, and it's lots of fun, right? Except one night I just totally blew my voice out. It was just gone. I was just going, what's wrong with my voice? I'm just going, oh, I'm reading the Bible. That's what the problem is. But uh, think about this. When God says, fear not or don't be afraid, how do you reckon he says it? Just think about it. What's his tone of voice? Because he's king, right? So he could say it however he wanted, couldn't he, as king? And he could say it like a drill sergeant king, couldn't he? Go, don't be afraid. That's my command. But you know what? Even if he said it in an authoritative king kind of way, that would still tell you that he cares about you being in a peaceful place, wouldn't it? Even if he wasn't prepared to get down and get his hands dirty and get on his knees and help you out with the worries and the anxieties that you have, the fact that he would be saying over 300 times in a book, don't be afraid, don't fear, would at least say that he's interested in your peacefulness. Now, this is, this is not complex, but it, hopefully it's profound. Like God is interested in your peacefulness. You just talk about the, and we'll get to this a little bit later on, but I, I think a lot of the times, and I've been noticing it myself as I've been preparing this stuff, that you, you have this constant static anxiety, static that kind of goes on in the background often. And it's just a low, it's almost like a low hum and it accompanies you in everything that you do. God's interested in there not being any static or low hum in your life. He's, he's actually interested in your peace. Listen to this scripture out of Luke 12. I'm going to read this scripture because this scripture hits at this whole thing of God maybe saying it authoritatively. Listen to this. It says this. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See that? Now that doesn't sound like an authoritative king, does it? That sounds like someone who's just really keen to help. Fear not, little flock. Look, you're a bunch of dumb sheep, all right? But don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Why don't you need to be afraid? Well, it gives you the answer. Because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's generous. That's why you don't need to fear. He's very generous. He's going to give you the whole kingdom if you're part of his family. You see, the one who sits on the throne, the one who's king, is your father. Is your father. You see, that the fear not is not just the trite words of a well-intentioned friend. Oh, don't worry about it. <laughs> just go, thanks, that helps. All right? 
It's not the command of an authoritative king. It's actually the words of someone who can match truth with action. You see, it's one thing I think I've said before at the project here. If God was loving but he wasn't strong, he would be of no use to you. And if he was strong but not loving, he wouldn't be any use to you either because he wouldn't care about you. But he's both loving and strong. That's a perfect combo, right? You guys like, almost should be rapturous applause at this point because you just go, well, this is good, right? Because I need someone who's really strong because there's lots of things that are bigger than me that freak me out and I also need someone who cares about me. Otherwise, they wouldn't do anything for me at all. And some of you go, well, I tried God, but it didn't help. Because that happens sometimes in anxiety, doesn't it? I tried him, but it didn't help. And I'll just ask you, how long did you try him for? Because the nature of anxiety and fear is that it wants to be the boss over, over you. And you'll try God maybe for a short period of time and then you'll just want to default to something else. Because it's just you, you become a bit frantic to find a solution without actually stopping long enough and being still long enough. Because this is a thing, isn't it? Psalm 46 talks about the fact you need to be still and know that God is God. I mean, that's a really practical thing when you're anxious is just stop and be still. You see, and the message today is called listen to anxiety, listen to Jesus. Do you see that? Listen to anxiety. What's anxiety saying about you? What does it say about what you treasure? And then listen to Jesus who says, don't be afraid. Listen to anxiety, listen to Jesus. And you see, part of our bind is everyone here, we live in a culture that teaches you to consume. And that consumption is going to resolve your issues. So you get to an anxious point and you just go, well, the ad 10 minutes ago just said that Red Rooster is going to solve my fears. All right? I need a rooster roll. All right? Now you're laughing because it's dumb. But that's kind of what they're saying on the TV, isn't it? And it's like you go from one, consume, one consumption to the next consumption, from one thing to the next, trying to find some kind of resolution to your anxieties because they're magic peddlers, aren't they, on TV? The marketers are magic peddlers that tell you if you buy what they're selling you, you'll be all right. We try objects, we try running to other people, but it doesn't work. We just turn in that spiritually ADD people don't we attention deficit disorder absolutely we get that don't we with anxiety it's just like well I'll try that for 30 seconds and then I'll go to something else I was doing this last night honestly I get anxious about speaking and I especially get anxious about doing these and I'm lying there at night and I'm just going and I can I can feel it it's almost like those um you know those kids kind of cartoon books where you flick the pages and the character moves as you flick the pages or even one of those really old, oh, this is bad, these guys over here are going, oh, this guy's so old. You know those old alarm clocks that used to flip over? You guys, do you know what I'm talking about? You do know. Oh, man, I'm feeling the love. <laughs> I just, in my head last night, it was just like, it's just flicking over. It's just flicking over and you just go to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And it's like, somehow I've just got to stop this thing. You know, it's like a merry-go-round that just goes nuts and you just go, I've got to get off this thing, right? And it's hard because I've got to get some stillness and I've got to hear what that's saying. And honestly, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm just going, how many hours is it? And I told myself when I came out of the, um, well, I'll tell you this. 
I don't always get things right, but I think I got this one right last night, right? If I wake up in the middle of the night, here's a typical pattern for me is I look at, my, I look at the alarm clock and I work out how much time I've got left to sleep, right? Especially when there's something that's a pressure the next day. But you know what, for me, I've worked out that me looking at the alarm clock is me trusting in sleep to help me and not trusting in God. So last night, middle of the night, you know, for all money, I, was, I felt, felt terrible. I felt so tired and I just want to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. It sounds really weird, but I'm, just going, I'm not going to look at it. So you know what I did? I went to bed and I didn't look at it. And you guys go, this is the dumbest thing. But here's the thing, right? You trust has got to land in reality. It's got to land in something tangible, doesn't it? So if you're actually going to deal with anxiety, there's, got to, there's probably going to be some dumb little things that you need to do. It's like not going back to check the iron for the third time after you leave the house, okay? Because you've already checked it twice and it was off those other two times and your house is not possessed by demons as far as you know. <laughs> so you're not going back. Do you get what I'm saying? People pointing at each other, it's beautiful. See, you're like me. You're all laughing at me before. But it's true. It's got to, if, you're going to, if, if anxiety is about what you trust and what you value, it's going to look different in the way that you actually do things. All right? Wow, you just got way off the track. That was good, though. I enjoyed that. There's one story I want to finish on today out of the Bible, and it's a story for anxious people. And hopefully it'll help to frame and summarise a bunch of things that I've talked about today. And it's a story in the Old Testament. So what you've got in the Old Testament is the people, the Jewish people kind of ended up growing up in, in Egypt and uh, Joseph kind of looked after him for a, li- a little bit and then he died and some pharaohs took over that didn't know Joseph and then they started giving the people a hard time, right? And the people just started complaining and whinging, right? And it's really interesting if you look in Exodus 2, they weren't even really directly whinging to God they were just complaining and crying out and I think that's really interesting because if you actually look at anxiety a lot of the times your anxieties aren't God oriented it's just a crying out and a complaint deep in your heart about the way that things are because sometimes if you're anything like me you know sometimes it's really difficult to make it God oriented but the really cool thing about Exodus and the people of Israel coming out is it actually says that God heard their crying out and their complaint. That is a hugely comforting thing for anxious people because God hears your complaint even if you don't direct it directly at him. True? He hears it. And that's what it says in Exodus chapter 2. But we're going to skip along a little bit, right? So God gets all the people out of Egypt. They get uh, next to the, the Red Sea. Uh, the army of the Egyptians is coming to kind of slice and dice them, all right? And uh, they, they, um, Moses kind of cries out to God. Everyone kind of complains and God opens up the sea and they walk through the sea. And then what happens is they get hungry. And this is what we're going to look at, the story of the manna. That's very small text, but hopefully uh, you, can, uh, you can look it up on your own device or in your own Bible if you want. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. We're going to start it. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. It's like, we wish God had just slaughtered us with a full stomach. (laughs) 
In, well, that's good. Yeah, let's stay in slavery as long as our belly's full. I don't care. Like, I'm going to get up in the morning. Oh, mate, he's going to whip me all day long to get me to do work, but at least I'll have a full stomach. Do you get the logic here? Like, there's not much, okay? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> you're a murderer, man. You're a serial murderer, and you're out here to kill a million people. Now, the interesting thing is, who are they talking to then? Moses and Aaron, right? Have a look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Do you see this? God hears and God does something even though they didn't direct it to him. Now, if you're a parent and someone, one of your kids came up and said this to you, what would you say? Ask me nicely. Did you say please? Wouldn't you? So I turn around, go back to wherever you were, come over again and do it properly. But you notice here that God doesn't do that. He doesn't send them away and say, go and do it nicely and then come back. It's not a model prayer. You see, God hears, even when we don't address him directly, and he hears even when our prayers suck, if you don't mind me saying it that way. He just does. So I, that's, I've got a big beef with a lot of praying in churches. A lot of praying in churches is like a speech competition, you know? Like you put, put together the best speech and there's all these other people going, oh, well, I can't do a speech like that, so I'm not going to pray. You get what I'm saying? God's not interested in a, in, in a speech. He just wants people to talk to him. And what you actually learn here is that God's interested in the impossible and God's interested in saving people. Now, here's the thing. You can't get saved from something unless you're in a massive amount of trouble, true? So we like the fact that God's a saviour and that he saves people and he helps people, but we often miss the fact that you've got to be in a whole bunch of trouble that actually needs saving, all right? So God, come through for me. Well, until there's something to come through for, I'm not going to be coming through because there's no need right now. God prefers the impossible. What's he going to do? Well, he's going to rain down manna. Out of the, it's just going to come out of the sky. Food. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And he's going to smoke you. All right? No, he's not. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You may have missed something there, but this is a really helpful passage for people who have got anxiety. You know why? Because God was very close, wasn't he? They actually only had to just look out and he was right there. There was some expression of his presence that was right there with them. And when you get anxious, that's exactly the case, isn't it? That God's right there. And even if you're not praying correctly, maybe you're not even praying. Maybe you're just grumbling inside your heart about all these pressures and these fears that you've got and you're not even directing it toward God. He hears that and he's close. See, you would think the Israelites would go back to the Red Sea and say, well, he got us out of the Red Sea, he opened it up and let us through. But they don't do that, do they? They just start grumbling and complaining about how 
They're in this predicament now and God's not doing anything to help. And Aaron and Moses are wanting to kill them. And this is really instructive because in a, in a practical kind of way, one of the ways out of anxiety is actually thanksgiving. You see, apologetics is a defense of the faith. It's a whole branch of Christianity that's a defense of the faith. When you're anxious, you need a good apologetic, you need a good defense to trust God. And you know what provides a good defense and apologetic for trusting God is, is uh, thanksgiving. So it, it's no surprise to me at all that in Philippians 4 verse 6 and 7 it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God. You see, the thanksgiving is the apologetic why it's reasonable to trust in God with your anxieties. Do you get my point? And Israel didn't do that. But Paul's saying, do it. When you're anxious, you need to give thanks because the thanksgiving gives you a reason why you should trust him for your anxieties. Now, what's really interesting about this, some of you noted this, and it was in verse 4 up there. God sent the bread from heaven to test them. And I think God does that all the time. Now, it's not like a mass test, right? Where he's going to give you a grade. This is the kind of test that works out whether a soldier in an army is a traitor or not. It works out, it's a test that works out their orientation. Do you get that? It's working out who the people trust. Your fears and your anxieties test you and reveal to you what you trust and who your allegiance is toward. And you just better get the idea that God sends most of the challenges you have in your life are sent by God. In fact, I would probably say all of them. A classic story in the New Testament where the disciples go out on the lake and they end up in this big windstorm in the middle of the lake and Jesus comes walking on the water. At the start of that story, it says, and Jesus sent them out on the lake in the boat. Now, I don't know whether he did it with a smirk or not, but I'm sure he knew what was coming. She says, oh, fellas, just go out there. I'll see you in about three hours when you start to freak out. All right, but this is going to be a good test for you. Manna continued. Exodus 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take, each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has, has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, and Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. God gives us what we need for today and for today, today alone. And what we see in this story, and we haven't got time today to do it, is the people didn't do what they were told. And we'll be honest, some of us wouldn't have done it either. It's like, well, I've got a esky in my tent. I'll just grab a little bit more. I'll stick it in the esky. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be fine. But can you hear in that there's a note of control, isn't there? I want to control the day after today. I want to have enough food for the day after today. And God said, don't gather anything for the next day. Just gather enough for today. You need to trust me because in all of this, God's saying, trust me. Trust me. I'm going to come through for you. Trust me. Trust me. And it's a test as to whether the people will fear the next day and live in the uncertainty of the provision of the next day, or whether they'll live in the provision of the day that they're in. Does that make sense? And this is kind of the, um, if 
you want to put it this way, the Christianized version of the biblical version of mindfulness, isn't it? Live in the present because God's provision is in the present. The manna was for today. And there was only one day where they were meant to collect enough for two days, and that was uh, for the Sabbath. You see, if God actually gave enough manna, like let's say God randomly just dumped a cold room out of the sky next to the Israelites and then filled it with manna. You know what I reckon would happen? I reckon they probably wouldn't have trusted him until it ran out. Because you'll start to trust a cold room. And what's in it? See, the way that the manna thing worked is it forced them to actually trust him in the future. I'm just going to finish. And I want to finish on this note. What you actually find is that life ultimately, because some of you just go, well, what happens if he doesn't provide food? Because there's some people in the world where he doesn't provide food. Well, you know, we learn things in the scriptures that life is not ultimately about physical fulfillment. You actually see in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 to 3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, the, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you see that? Like, this is Moses in Deuteronomy saying, there's a higher reality, there's a higher food than physical manna. And that's more important. And you actually find Jesus is uh, in being tempted by the devil in the wilderness in the Gospels for 40 days and he's hungry and at the end of it, this is what he quotes back to the devil. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. I can do without food if I've got my father. That's what he's saying. And how many of us, I mean, if you had the option of someone that loves you saying to you, I love you deeply or having a banquet, which one would you pick? Or having a banquet. I mean, most of us would say, I would have someone who genuinely and deeply loves me express their love toward me over having a banquet. There would be a sense in which that would be food far more than having a banquet would be food. And isn't being with a loved one so much more wonderful than food? I mean, you see it when people are going in and people stop eating when they're in love with each other, don't they? Because there's something that's just far more sustaining. We actually see this come out a little bit in uh, Philippians 4. But Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Listen to this. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's a man saying... I mean, in the Old Testament, you've got God's going to supply your needs. Here's a man, Paul, in the New Testament saying, even when God doesn't bring physical food and I'm hungry, I've learned how to be content because there's something, there's a food that's higher than physical food and physical provision. So let me finish in. What's the background buzz of anxiety in your life? What is it? And I just encourage you, stop and listen to your anxiety. And remember, men get angry typically when they're anxious. 
And women tend to be more anxious in the typical sense. What does it say? What does it say about what you love and what does it say about who you trust? I want to just pray for you. God, I'd, I'd be like the Israelites, I'm sure. If you just served it all up and you gave me 20 years supply of whatever it was that I wanted, I think I would stop trusting you. And there's probably a number of us here, God, who I honestly would say, well, we'd probably do that too. And so you're just really smart about how you help us. The provision for today. The mercies are new every morning. New every morning. There's enough mercies for today. So God, I pray that you help us to live in the present. And as you pull us into the present by the way that you supply our needs, help us to notice that and be relaxed with that. And know that tomorrow's going to be okay because you're already there and you've already planned for tomorrow. And there's not going to be any surprises for you tomorrow. There'll be enough supply tomorrow for you to come through on all the things that you promised us. And God, in all of that, when we don't get things that just so look like we should get them, help us to remember that there's just a, a whole another level there's a whole another mystery with dealing with anxiety and that has to do with there being something far greater than physical supply so god please help us help us to be calm help us to be peaceful people who trust you and trust well amen